The Bible is an amazing book. Um, it was written during different time periods, circumstances, different authors, at times in Israel and times in some of them in other nations, over a period of 1,500 years. Now, this does not mean that it took 1,500 years of nonstop writing uh, to put all this together, but rather we should view, view this 1,500 years as God was allowing this time period to be used to get the books that you and I need in our hand today to follow Him and to know what we needed to. And so God was using that time frame uh, to get to us uh, what we needed. The oldest book is the book of Genesis or the book of Job. Uh, Abraham and Job were contemporaries, and so um, we don't really fully know exactly who wrote the book of Job. A lot of people believe that Moses um, was, was a strong possibility of writing uh, this story of Job as well. Uh, Moses wrote about 1400 B.C., which is about 3400 years ago, long time ago. In the Bible... The writers of the Old Testament, hear this this morning, refer to the writing of their words 3,808 times as the very words of God, that what they were proclaiming and what they were writing were literally the words of God. And and the Old Testament alone claims 3,808 precise references to this great reality. The prophets and the kings who wrote um, knew that they had received proclaimed and written the very words of God. And they referred their words to this, uh, this, this way. And again, they did so over 3,800 times. The last and most recent book in the New Testament was the book of Revelation, written somewhere around um, 95 A.D. And although gospel, Matthew's gospel is listed first, most likely the first New Testament letter that was written was the book of James somewhere around eighty forty to 44. And so it was likely the very first one, or 44, excuse me, uh, to 49 uh, A.D. The entire New Testament was written in about 50 years between 44 A.D. and by the time John wrote a revelation on the Isle of Patmos in 95 A.D. And we don't know how long every author wrote, how long it took them. Paul's one, a couple of Paul's letters and, and John's as well, they're just one page. And so some of these they could have written in one sitting. Um, It might have taken them a week or so or several days or it could have taken them months. Uh, The book of Romans, I doubt, was written in one sitting and so some of these others. And so likely these things were a development and process with some of those. You read the book of Isaiah, 60-something chapters, and so there's just quite a bit of information that's there. We do know this, and we'll see this clearly today, that each of the Bible's authors wrote only as much as the Holy Spirit led them to write. And so I believe that what has come to us, and I hope you do as well because it's really critical, you'll see this today, um, that the Scripture was written under the inspiration and leadership of the Holy Spirit. He breathed out, as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, the Scripture. Scripture is breathed out by God. And so last week, as I shared with us, I posed, I think, a a very important question um, that we need to ask as we approach the Bible. And the And the question is just simply this. If the scripture that has come to us, all of these books, is not reliable, then I just want to say this this morning, then what in the world are we doing here today? Because if the scripture is not reliable, there is nothing in the world today that we could go, okay, this is what I need to go to and trust in. And so 
a defense of the Scripture is absolutely critical for Christians. And again, I want to say this to us this morning. Peter is writing, Paul writes, John writes, James writes, Isaiah writes, all of the prophets write. These are the words of God. And we're going to see today Jesus' affirmation of this great reality. But if we cannot trust this, then all that we can trust in is, comes down to is a subjective truth to individuals. This is, this is my truth. You have your truth. And so we as Christ followers, and again, just, just to say it to make sure it's clear, Peter's writing today, the Old Testament writers, the prophet writers, the, the writers that were kings that wrote, they, they knew and they understood these are the words of God. And again, this morning, it's just absolutely critical. If we cannot trust the Scripture this morning, then where in the world can you go to to find something that's reliable? We, we want, honestly, this book to be supernatural. We want it to be supernatural. We want the book to come to us, these words that are that they're God's words, they're, they're otherworldly, because all, if all we have is this is man's thought and man's creativity and man's stories, then we don't really have anything. There's a lot of man's stories in the world. But we want God's word, and we, we, we need to come to understand it, that this is a supernatural book. Because the implications from the premise that the Scripture is not reliable, listen to me, affects everything. We just spent about 25 minutes singing. The authors of those songs that we have just sung went to this book, and they wrote songs based on this. And so if we can't rely on the Scripture, then how do we even know that what we were singing a while ago is absolutely true? Think about prayer. If the Bible is not reliable in all the things that it gives and demonstrates to us in the Old and New Testament about prayer, how can we even know if this is not reliable how we ought to pray? Are we even praying the right things to God? Another implication that comes to us is just church. If the scripture is not reliable and all the things that it says about church, then how do we know that what we're doing in regard to church is even right? What about family? Watch this. Do you see? The implications of how this unfolds for us, if this is not God's word, affects everything. We will not know truth if we don't trust this. And so the scripture affirms itself as true. The prophets write, the New Testament writers do this as well. And this is absolutely critical for us um, to see this today. So I'm going to talk today just about the affirmation of Scripture in regard from the, the writers. And so, um, are y'all ready? All right, let's get into this. And we're, we're about to Zoom, okay? Buckle your seatbelt, okay? And we're, we've got to go through things. Usually when I write these sermons, they're about 17 to 18 pages. They were 20, 23 pages this week, okay? And so, um, some of them are shorter content, but uh, I'm just telling you up front, just telling you up front, I got about 45 minutes, okay? And so put your seatbelt on. Let's open up our minds, and we'll see um, what's here for us. So the first thing I want to see this morning is just the affirmation of the authority of Scripture from the authors of the Scripture. And again, as I said a while ago, there were kings who were authors, there were prophets who were authors, um, and then the apostles. And I want to talk for a minute about the Old Testament affirmation of God speaking. When you read the Old Testament closely and you examine what's there, as I said a while ago, 3,808 times the Old Testament writers use phrases like this, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, the Word of God came to me, the Word of God said, 
the Lord, Isaiah said in, in Isaiah 1-2, the Lord has spoken. So the Old Testament writers over and over, 3,808 times say, God spoke. This is, these are God's words. This is what God told me to say. The same pattern is followed in the New Testament. Matthew five seventeen. here's one of them. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. John 17.17, Jesus in the upper room. Sanctify them, he's praying, sanctify them in your truth. And then Jesus says this, and your word is truth. So the New Testament writers, listen to this, quote the Old Testament as the word of God 320 times. And they refer to the Old Testament, so they directly quote it 320 times. And then they refer to the Old Testament as the Word of God in the New Testament 1,000 times. Now let me put both of these together, and this blew my mind this week, and was such a convincing thing for me. So that means this, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Old Testament 3,808 references in the New Testament... 1,000 references that this is the Word of God. That comes to 4,808. There are 900, excuse me, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And when you do the math there, on average, four times per 1,189 chapters, on average, the Bible says that this is within itself affirms these are the words of God. So over and over, the Scriptures affirming New Testament and Old Testament, this great reality. So as we walk through this next part of Second Peter this morning, we will continue to do this. And for us, the only way to fight error is Scripture. Think about that with me. It's just another thing. We could go back to the point of where we go. How do we know how to pray? How do, you, how do we know that we're singing right? How do we know that we're doing church right? How do we know that we're doing family right if we can't rely upon the Scripture? Well, how do we even know what error is if you can't rely on the Scripture? And so I just want to remind us that God is way big enough to get the Word to us accurately, inspired, true, that you and I can stand on and you and I can trust. And there are all kinds of levels, um, attacks that are leveled at the Scripture. And just ultimately, if the Bible is unreliable, then we have nothing. And that's a strong statement, but I just think it's there. If we just cannot trust the Scripture, then what do we really have that we can really trust in? And I've become convinced of it, not because I walk with the Lord for a long time, but I've just become convinced of it because, partly because of that. But there's... But there's no book in the history of the world that's been taught like this. They don't teach this way that we do here in Islam. They don't, they don't do this. There's not this great proclamation and this walking through. I mean, you and I have seen this. The Word of God is so deep, we can only do about three verses per Sunday. Is there another book like that? Shakespeare is not like that. Aristotle's writings and Plato's writings are not like that. You can examine them, but you can't do like you hear. And the reason is, is God's Word. We've come to know this to be true. It is living and active, and, it, and it's transformative, and it's different than anything that is out there. And that is why it is, we believe that it is supernatural, and it has come to us in a powerful way. 
So let me give one more illustration before we actually get into the text. One of the great, I think it's silly, one of the great um, attacks that has come against the scripture is to say, well, the scripture is like the telephone game. Remember the telephone game as a kid? You get in a circle and and then that person you, tells it and by the time it gets around and they tell the original story and everybody kind of laughs and blah, blah, blah and go, oh, that's kind of funny. That's not, that's not what I said originally. Well, I just, I think that is a silly illustration because that's not how the scripture was passed. Peter didn't go, oh, I'm going to tell you. You go tell somebody. They stood up before thousands of people and proclaimed this. And for thousands of years now, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, even with the prophets, they stood up under public scrutiny. The apostles preached and proclaimed under public scrutiny. scrutiny. And here we are in 2019, and the Scripture still stands today. It still stands today. Again, there's no other book in the history of the world that's had public scrutiny in, in this way. And it's not the telephone game where eventually it got down the road. It was this. No, it just has been proclaimed. The same messages have been proclaimed, and we are proclaiming again today, 2019, this day in April. And we've come to know the powerful reality of God's Word. So the Old Testament authors affirmed these were the words of God. The New Testament does it as well. But let me just touch on this. Jesus affirmed the Scripture as well. Now watch. <clears throat> Israel didn't do real well with God's words, right? So it got to a point in time where the kingdom split. There was a northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Assyria came in. Ten tribes in the north were taken away. God, through the prophets, was telling, listen, Judah, you're going to go away into exile. And there are all different kinds of things throughout the Old Testament that happened. So watch this. There were 70 years of exile. There was a time before the exile even came where God's word, the scrolls were lost. If you remember, they were discovered un- rediscovered under King Josiah. They were rebuilding things and straightening things out because Josiah's grandfather and his father were very wicked, wicked men. The scripture had fallen out of play. They're redoing the temple and getting things straightened up, and they discovered the scripture. And so there was a period of time for maybe 30 to 40 years where the scripture was not even being publicly read in Israel at all. It had just been lost. There was 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a 70-year period of exile where the Word of God as well had lots of issues. Not the Word of God had issues, but it just had fallen out of being an issue for the people. Now watch. When Jesus stepped onto the scene 2,000 years ago, He fully confirmed, in spite of all the things that had happened in the Old Testament, He fully confirmed the that the Old Testament was what? God's Word. Jesus' first action in his public ministry wasn't, I'm going to get, hey, let's get some scholars together because, man, we, too many people have copied this down and, and, and under Josiah, had, you know, there, it was lost and then there's 70 years of captivity and blah, blah, blah and all this kind of stuff. Jesus stepped on the scene and he didn't put a council together to say, we got to fix all the errors of the Old Testament. Jesus stepped on the scene and said, what? This is God's Word. What the prophets wrote, what the prophets said, it's God's word. And so Jesus affirmed over and over and over again in his teaching, in his life, that the Old Testament was this. And we're going to put these up on the screen here. They are, okay, they're up there. The scripture, Jesus said this, the scripture was divinely inspired and necessary for life. 
Jesus himself affirmed that the Old Testament was historically accurate. He quotes Adam and Eve. Why does he quote Adam and Eve? Because he believed in Adam and Eve. Jesus quotes Jonah and the great fish. Why did Jesus quote Jonah and the great fish? Because he believed in Jonah and the great fish. Jesus also spoke about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's in Matthew chapter 22. He spoke about, watch this, Noah and the flood. Matthew chapter 24. What did he believe about Noah and the flood? That it was a true story. He affirmed Malachi's prophecy about John the Baptist. He affirms Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Daniel. So Jesus said the Old Testament scriptures are divinely inspired. The Old Testament historically accurate. Jesus also said this, the Bible has one unified message. How do we get that? We get that on the day of the resurrection. He spent the whole day of the resurrection with two men and with the apostles affirming and pointing to them and showing to them that the Old Testament's point, the Old Testament's point was Jesus. So he said, listen, there's one unified message, and that was to point to me. Fourthly, Jesus said that the Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, must be fulfilled, and even some of the minute details. Listen to this. This is Matthew twenty six fifty four. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And that Scripture there is about in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest him, there's a scripture there that Jesus quotes about the fulfillment of scripture, even in his arrest in the garden. Jesus affirmed that the Bible, the Old Testament writers, is true. Again, watch, the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus was there, so when Jesus is referring to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus also said, that the, that the scriptures were sufficient for salvation. Luke 16, 31. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so Jesus affirmed that the scriptures were enough. Jesus also used the Old Testament scriptures to justify some of his actions or to not justify, to defend some of his actions. In Matthew, in Mark 11, excuse me, um, he appealed to the scriptures to show why he overturned the money changers in the temple. And so watch this. Okay, we're going to move on. The Old Testament writers, New Testament writers, affirmed that what they were writing was under the leadership of the Spirit and was from God. They are God's very words. Jesus steps onto the scene in spite of all of that history. Same attacks that are being leveled at the Bible today were, could have been leveled back then man who touched the Bible for a long time, Jesus steps onto the scene and he says this, these are God's words. Jesus affirmed that. So there's three options when we look at Jesus about the scripture. One, he was this, he was a big deceiver. If he knew the Old Testament contained a bunch of errors and he went around everywhere saying the Old Testament's true, but it wasn't true, then Jesus was a big deceiver. Secondly, he was ignorant. If he knew that, if he if he read the Old Testament scriptures and recognized error or couldn't re- really couldn't recognize error, then he just wasn't smart enough to figure it out. The third option is this. The scriptures are inerrant. They're true. They're absolutely the truth. And I believe that's where we have to land. Please land there. Because I think we ought to be really, really careful that we think that we're the smartest person on the planet today. That we know more than what God knows and we can, we've got more power and 
that man has the kind of power to stop the moving forward of God's word. And you probably have met people that way. You know, Mark Donahoe is this way sometimes. He thinks he's the smartest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, we all think differently. But anyway, go ahead and think that. But anyway, here's what I want to caution us on before we, we're, we're, I promise we're going to get to First Peter and we're going to Zoom. But listen to me. The Old Testament writers affirmed they wrote the words of God. Jesus said these are the words of God. And we've got to be very careful. <clears throat> if you are a Christ follower, to attack Scripture. I just would, I would caution us very carefully. Because if the Scripture, if everything the Scripture affirms about who He is, then you and I ought to be really careful. Because if He is absolutely true and absolutely mighty and without error and perfect... When he speaks, that's the way it's going to be. That's the way his word's going to be. And we've got to yield to that. We've got to bend our mind. We've got to bend our heart. We've got to bend our will. We've got to bend to the reality of this. Lastly, before we get to the text, is Old Testament, New Testament writers affirm these are the words of God. Jesus affirmed these are the words of God. And this is the most convincing one. The Holy Spirit affirms that the Scripture is the Word of God. And we don't have time to go through all these, but I'm just going to briefly read them. Listen to these. This is John 16, 12. Jesus is in the upper room on the night that he's going to be betrayed, and he says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's like, your mind's about to really be blown, and so I'd like to say some more stuff, but you can't handle it right now. But he says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, will glorify me, the Son, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is Jesus' affirmation saying this, the Spirit's going to come and He's going to speak the truth. The Spirit is God, and what He says to you is going to, you can trust in fully. Paul said it like this, 1 Corinthians 2, 12, and 13. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world. We didn't get man's Spirit, the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Watch this, that we might understand, understand the things freely given us by God. What things freely given us by God? And we impart this, these things that have been given to us by God, he says, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Paul said it like this writing to the church in Galatia. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation, supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is going to do this today. He's going to now just close our time, and he's going to say this. The Spirit was involved in the writing of Scripture. All right, go to Second Peter now, verse 1. Not one, chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right. I've got seven points from verse 19, and so let's get going. Just seem to build on on one another, and the first thing is just simply this. Peter says this in verse 19. The written word of God is more certain and reliable than eyewitness testimony. He's not downplaying eyewitness testimony. He's not downplaying spiritual experience. What he's saying is simply this. There is something more certain than even spiritual experience that's true, that it's real, it happened. Um, there's something stronger even than that. And so, so here's what Peter's doing. He's saying to these believers, he's saying to them, listen, I want you to have an unshakable confidence in the Word of God. And here's why you can. Listen, I was on the mountain. I saw this foreshadowing on the mountain, James and John and I did, of Jesus' second coming glory. We talked about that last week. We got to see a taste. His clothes lit up. His face was like the sun. And I saw it. I heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. Peter says, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. But we have something even more reliable than my eyewitness testimony. John's and James's and the, and the thing that is more trustworthy is not our experience, it is the written Word of God. And so Peter says, the more certain reality than even eyewitness testimony is the Word of God. And so the prophetic Word of Scripture is more solid proof than even a spectacular experience that Peter, James, and John experienced on the, at the Transfiguration. So don't miss this. Peter is saying that Scripture ranks even above his experience, and he was there. And I think there's so much depth to Peter's point here that the Word of God is more reliable proof of Jesus' ministry in the second coming than even Peter's authentic first-hand encounter. And here's why. Our experiences are a moment in time, right? And they're incredible. I, do you love your experiences with Christ? I love my experiences with Christ. I wouldn't, I mean, you know, when we go on these mission trips to these places, I mean, just the, the moments of experiencing Christ and seeing God move is just amazing. And, and it's sometimes hard to, to give testimony and describe it. And, and those moments are, they're, they are a confirmation of the reality of things. They, they, they communicate to us the joy of walking in the truth of God's Word, but they are moments in time, and then they're over. But there's something that's going to last forever, and that is the eternal nature of God's Word. And we can stand on it, we can trust in it, and that's why it's so supernatural that we can, we can bank on and stake our very lives in what God has said. So experiences are moments in time, but God's Word is eternal. 
Now, this doesn't mean that we throw out experiences. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand that. That's not Peter's point. That's not my point as well this morning. But he's just basically saying this. If, if experiences were the most important thing, did you not think that Jesus would have come along and said, man, make sure you just have a bunch of experiences? And he didn't do that. What he did was say this. You follow and you walk with me, and the joy of walking in obedience with me is going to bring some pretty incredible experiences, but there's going to be moments when most of life is a bit boring, is it not? We watch television and, and a 30-minute television show. I mean, these people have the most drama that you've ever can imagine in their lives. And how, how do these people survive, um, you know, these, these fake things that we see on television? Not, nobody has lives like this. Nobody has lives like that. That every week there's some kind of new crisis and lesson to be learned and stuff. Most of life is just kind of just trudging along, right? And then there's some unique things. And I think it's in those trudging along moments that we are reminded that we've got to stand on the truth of God's word. And I think it's in those difficult moments as well that we do that. It's all of those things. And then along the way, there's these magnificent moments where God shows the glory of who he is. And it has this powerful working in our life and reminding us of the joy in walking with the scripture. And so I think we have to weigh the moment in time in the internal nature of the scripture and to be really clear about those things and so peter says listen the holy spirit is the author of this and because he's the author of this then even our eyewitness experiences our personal things they are not more powerful than god's word secondly then peter says this that the written word is the more confirmed word. It's the more trustworthy word. So one, you can trust in the scripture because it's greater than even eyewitness testimony. Secondly, the written word is the more fully confirmed word. This word here that Peter uses, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Prophetic word is referring back to the Old Testament. Got to make this clear. Now, the New Testament was being written. I don't think that he's not saying that the New Testament letters that were Scripture, that, that were coming to be known in the church, were not Scripture. He's not saying that. But this is a reference, the prophetic word, Old Testament, pointing to the coming of Jesus. And so he says the written word is the more fully confirmed word. And I believe this, this is so beautiful, what Peter's communicating here. He's saying this, listen, the Old Testament writers wrote all of these amazing things about Jesus. And they were foreshadows, and each was a picture from the different prophets revealing the depth of the glory that was to come and be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And now Jesus comes along, and people see this, and this beautiful tapestry of his life is now before people, and they can see everything that the prophets had written. It's now before them. And so Peter is saying, listen, we can trust what they wrote because it has been fulfilled. It's trustworthy because in Christ, everything they wrote has now been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I want to make this point before we move on. There's been a misunderstanding of this text, and I think it's really important, particularly in 2019. Is everybody with me? I mean, this pastor say this all the time, but I mean it. You have got to hear what I'm saying today because your faith eventually one day is going to crumble if you don't trust this. And Peter's making one of the greatest New Testament arguments about the Scripture here. So, so hear this this morning. Listen, because there's so much confusion in 2019 in the church in the West. 
And here's the reality. Here's the misunderstanding of this text. A lot of people have interpreted this, say this, our experience, watch this, validates the Scripture. And I think that's a dangerous interpretation. Because it's saying this, it puts us too much at the center of things. The Scripture is true whether we follow Him, don't follow Him, half-hearted it. The Scripture is just true. It's true. And so Peter's not saying this. My experience on the mountain validates God's Word. No, God's Word is validated. It's sufficient. It is true. It is real. Experience does not validate or verify the truth of Scripture. Here's what I would say. Walking in the truth of Scripture doesn't validate the Scripture. It allows us to enjoy the Scripture and enjoy God, and it communicates and reminds us of the truth of Scripture. If the Scripture cannot stand on its own, and watch this, if the Scripture needs us to prop it up, again, I want to pose the question, what in the world are we doing here this morning? See, I think the Scripture stands on its own. It doesn't need us. It stands on its own, and I think it will continue to do so irregardless of experience. Because here's what's happening in our day. Churches either put forward a great emphasis in worship that says experience, or churches put forward the Word of God. And again, I think experience is okay. And I think you can find out about these things in a, a number of different things. It's experiential worship where everything in the room is designed on experience and designed to make sure everybody feels good. I love you. I love you as your pastor. But my goal every Sunday isn't when you leave here that you feel good about things. I hope sometimes you feel bad about your life in the right kind of way. That there's conviction, a desire to change, not a desire of, can somebody just tell me something so I can make it to next week? And can you, can you make me feel good about myself again uh, so that I can make it back, so I can make it kind of through the week? And I think what you and I need to do, again, watch this, our experience, I don't know about you, but sometimes my emotions on a Thursday afternoon aren't overly excited about God. My emotions, my human emotions. And what I have to do in those moments is to say, God, I'm not feeling it as a human being. I love you. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surrender this to you. I'm going to say, God, I'm not feeling it today. And I'm going to stand upon what is eternal and what is true. And so we can't do it. And so, um, so we want to hear, place forward above everything, the only way we can know who God is is the Scripture, not ourselves, not experience. And script, our experience does not validate the written text. And so we want to aim at feeding the Word. So here we go. <clears throat> we can trust in God's Word because it's greater than eyewitness testimony. It's the more fully confirmed Word because it was fulfilled and, and fulfilled many of the things. Thirdly, just briefly, it is the surest place to stand because of those first two things. It's greater than eyewitness testimony. Um, it is the more fully confirmed prophetic word. is more fully confirmed, Peter says there. And you and I need to remember the powerful reality to stand on it. It is the surest place to stand. Fourthly, the written word, according to verse 19, in the New Testament confirms the written word in the Old Testament. Let me just remind us, 300 prophetic verses about coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. Do you know that there are 300 prophetic verses in the New Testament about the second coming of Jesus? 
So the New Testament comes along and there are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of Jesus that the New Testament writers write. There are 300 prophecies coming that haven't even been fulfilled yet about Jesus. Here are some of the Old Testament. The Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. He would be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. He would be of the lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7, 16. He would be from the city of Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. His ministry would be introduced by a forerunner who would speak in the spirit and power of Elijah, Malachi 3, 1, Malachi 4, 5, and Isaiah chapter 40. That was fulfilled in who? John the Baptist. His ministry, what it would be like, Isaiah wrote it in Isaiah 42. The type of miracles that he would do, Isaiah wrote about and prophesied about them in Isaiah 35. His triumphal entry in Jerusalem on a donkey in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That's 8 of the 300. We could have spent all day just going through the fulfillment of all of those. For me, one of the most (coughs) confirming things that the Old Testament was true was that 1,000 years, well, actually, it's a little less than that, about 900 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Romans, Psalm chapter 22 was written, and Isaiah chapter 53, 500 years before crucifixion was even invented, or actually about 400 years, they wrote about what would happen to Jesus on the cross, where he would be buried with a rich man's tomb. So before crucifixion was even invented, David wrote and Isaiah wrote that the coming Messiah was going to die And all of those things are seen fulfilled in the New Testament. So, Old Testament's confirmed in the New Testament. It was done by eyewitness testimony. But the word, the written word, is more fully confirmed because it came to be true, this prophetic nature. And then Peter says this. Look in verse 19. He says this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So here's what Peter says next. You ought to trust in God's word because of this. It ought to be given your utmost attention because it is the true word of God. And so Peter says this. Listen, the prophetic word... The prophetic word is more fully confirmed to which you ought to pay attention to it. You ought to really give your attention to it. And, and, and he's just saying to them, since the word is the word of God, then we must pay attention to what is written. This word well here is a Greek word, kals, K-A-L-S, and it means this, what is right and what is excellent. And you and I do what is right and what is excellent when we pay attention to his word. Now I want to make a statement. I love R.C., Mark, I love our band. I love our worship people. I hope that I don't encourage them enough. And so I am encouraging you today. Okay, thank you very much for those, our band and our worship team. And I've said these things before in the past, and I want to say it again today. Sometimes I've said the music, I've indicated that the music is not the most important thing. And the reason I've done that is simply because this, I, I love our music. I just downloaded a CD today and spent $6.99 on a worship CD today. I love worship music. I love it. And I'm deeply grateful for our band and the worship team. But music and worship songs are not the emphasis of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not. The Old Testament and the New Testament's emphasis is not singing. 
It is the proclamation of the truth of God's word and walking in that. So should we sing? Absolutely. There are texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament about singing. But that's not the, that's not the driving thing of the church. The driving thing of the church is what we're doing right now. Sunday after Sunday, proclaiming the word of God. And I want to draw our attention there. I think music helps with that. And unless we're singing, watch this again, unless we're singing actual scripture that's written here, we're singing words written by people that love the Lord, but they're not scripture. Not all of these songs, even though they're true, they don't rise to the level of scripture. And so because of that, you and I need to always remind ourselves that sometimes there's songs out there that aren't biblically accurate that they play on Christian radio. Are y'all with me? So we always use discernment. How do we know that that's not right? Well, because it doesn't line up with Scripture. And I'm not going to go. I'm, that's all I'm going to go. I have a lot of problems with Christian music. Um, I love a lot of Christian music, but I have a lot of problems with, with, with some of it. So we just use discernment. You use discernment. I hope you do every Sunday when I'm up here, right? I hope you do, is what I'm saying lining up with not your own interpretation, because Peter's about to deal with that, but the interpretation that's correct in regard to Scripture. Now he says this. Oh, my goodness. Mark, I just never have enough time. So, anyway. All right. Here's number six. I told you there are nine, so we're almost done. Okay, so we're over half. And then he says this. To which you should pay well attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Here's what Peter says. The written word is the most certain light in life. It's the most certain light light for life that you and I can have. And so as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now this is fascinating. Stay with me here. In the case of the scriptures, we should be drawing in, standing in, living in, walking in. The light that shines our path in the great darkness that you and I live in called our world. The lamp, light of God's word moves us forward and lets us to see okay, what's coming, what's around us, and it lights it up. It reminds me of this great hymn that was written back in 1922 by Helen Limmel. And it was this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And so the Scripture becomes Jesus. Watch, watch what Peter says here. It is a lamp. It is a lamp shining forth. Watch this. To which, you would do, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter's saying this, listen, you pay attention to the light. Pay attention to the light. This word dark place here means dingy and dirty. That's how Peter's describing the world. So how do you walk through a world that's dingy and dirty? You need a lamp. Psalm 119, 105, first thing up there a while ago. It won't be quite as exciting in the second service as it was this morning. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my what? My path. It's how I move forward in a dark place. So let me just put them all together. The written word is more certain than eyewitnesses. The written word is more conf- fully confirmed word. It's the surest place to stand. 
the written word in the New Testament confirms the written word of the Old Testament. The written word is to be given the utmost attention. The written word is the most certain light. And watch this. And the written word is to be followed until the living word returns. Now I find this amazing. So here's what Peter says here. <clears throat> and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's he saying here? Watch. The lamp is what? I'm not trying to trick you. The lamp is what? The word of God. Who's the morning star? Jesus. Watch this. Boy, this blew my mind this week because I never, I'd never walked through Peter. I'd read Second Peter. But I'd never walked through it. Watch this. There's coming a day when Jesus is coming back, praise his name. And he's going to establish his kingdom here. And so in a world that's dark, in a world that's dingy, in the world that hates him, in the world that tries to get its claws into us and to pull us away from God, in a world like that, you need a lamp. Now, it's not real bright out there today, but how much do we need a lamp today to get around the rest of the day until nighttime comes. Does anybody need a lamp today walking outside? Are we going to need a lamp to see where we're going? No. Watch the beautiful thing that Peter is saying here. Until Jesus comes back, you need a lamp. Why? Because where we live, it's dark. But when he comes up, you don't need a lamp anymore. Why? Because he's the morning star. And there's going to come a time when there's no lights that are needed because he's the light. And that's why for me, just my personal opinion, I, I prefer to worship in the light than, rather than in the darkness. I know some people like the dark and they can concentrate, but I like to worship in the light because I think that's what the Scripture says He is. Worship, worship Him. So watch what Peter's saying here. We follow the Word of God until the Son of God comes back. And then we're not... Man, I've been praying all week. How do I communicate this? God's word is eternal. That's what the scripture says. But there's going to come a day when we don't need the lamp of God's word anymore because we're going to have the word. We don't need the word of God because we have the word of God. If that doesn't confuse you, then you just try to work that out this afternoon. But that's what, he's, that's what Peter's saying. Now we need a lamp. Because the world's dark. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait until the sun shines. And Jesus is going to come back, and that's what Peter's saying. There's coming a day when we will live in the very light of his presence. And so until then, what do we need here? We need a lamp. It'd be foolish today to go, man, I, I need to go shopping at Kroger today, and you're walking up and down the aisles with a light, a lamp. You don't need that. Or I need to go play golf today and somebody hold a flashlight for me so I can hit or whatever the case. We don't need that. And, and that's the picture. There's coming a time in the future when the lamp of the light of God's word is not going to be needed because we will be living in the presence of the morning star. So until the day dawns and until the morning star arises in our hearts, then that's coming. But he says, listen, it's necessary now for the word of God. Eight, the written word comes from God. So look at verse 20. 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This word comes means to bring into existence. So we don't approach the Scripture saying, well, this is what I think and this is what they think and they think this. We approach the Scripture not from our own interpretation. We allow the Scripture to interpret what? Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Man doesn't interpret. We interpret, but we don't. We're not the primary So we exercise wisdom and caution as we do this. He says it doesn't doesn't come from man. It comes from God, and it was released by God to the writers. God gave us this word. Lastly, number 9, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. For no prophecy, there wasn't one thing written about Jesus in the Old Testament that was grounded in what Isaiah wanted Jesus to be. Was it anything that Moses wrote? Was it anything that Malachi wrote? Was it anything that Zechariah wrote? Was it anything that Zephaniah wrote? Was it anything that Daniel wrote? Nothing written in the Old Testament was done by the will of man. But men, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they spoke from God. God gave them the words. God led them. The Spirit led them. And they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This word carried in the New Testament is used one time, one other time. And it's when in Acts chapter 26 when it talked about the wind getting in the sails of the ship that was carrying the ship that Paul was on. And it's the same idea. The prophets and the New Testament writers attached their lives to God, put up their sails, and the Spirit led them to write exactly what they need, He wanted them to write. And so the inspiration came from the Holy Spirit of Scripture as his special work. And I want you to notice, before we close things this morning, what Peter says there. For no prophecy was ever, 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 ever produced by the will of man. Why? I've read the Book of Mormon. I don't recommend it. I did so just because I'm a pastor and wanted to know things. But I would caution, caution all of us just to be really careful as I read it. There's just no life there. I'm sorry. It's just such a difference. I've read parts of the Quran before as well. It's just not alive because God's word is living and active. And listen, connected to the Bible, no prophecy, Peter says, was ever produced in the will of man. And every other book outside of the scripture was produced by man. Not anything in the Old Testament, not anything in the New Testament was this way. Let me conclude with this. Then why is there so much confusion today and turmoil and disarray among the people of God in regard to the Scripture? And I think to adequately answer this, I think we have to go back to Joshua chapter 1 that we've been reading. Here's the problem. Here's what Joshua 1.8 says. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do all that is written in it, and then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. What's the problem today? It's because we're not meditating on God's Word, and we let it depart from our mind, and we let it depart from our mouth. It is to be the meditation of our day, and What happens when you lose focus on the Word of God? There's confusion and uncertainty. 
Just as it is in the Garden of Eden, Satan comes with his lies, and he offers another alternative. And if we buy into the lies, we will move away from the Word of God and farther from the light, and that's what he wants to do. So that's one issue with conclusion. We need to get back to meditating on it. If this is God's Word, which I know it to be, I'm trusted to be, then it's got to be a part of our heart. Lastly, conclusion. Is it spiritual experience or is it the Scripture? I can tell you a lot of churches you could go to today, and here's what they're going to do today. It's just happening. It's happening this morning. I know I look cool this morning. I'm dressed really hip, and, you know, and I impress you every week, and you know, I just, uh, I didn't hear any amens to that, but anyway. And the whole emphasis last week in a lot of churches in our area was, boy, when people come, we gotta, we got we to gotta help them be motivated to make it through the week and kind of get them excited and get them a good feeling. And that lasts a little bit. It's a moment in time, and probably people are experiencing some really cool things today. But I want to tell you something today that's going to help you six years from now. That's going to help you 20 years from now. That's going to impact your marriage on Wednesday night. That's more than a feeling. So it's not a spiritual experience. It's Scripture. And here's my proof. Jesus told a parable one time about a guy named Lazarus, a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man had everything in life here, and then he died and he went to hell. And Lazarus didn't have anything in life and he went to heaven and he's in the bosom of Abraham and there's this great chasm that's there and Jesus tells the story and it's hot there. And the rich man says, Lord, can, can somebody just dip their finger in water and just touch my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And then he says, can somebody go and tell my family about this place? Because I don't want my family to come here. You know what Abraham says? Father Abraham, Jesus says, listen, this is what he says. He says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I've got five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses. They have the script. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, 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 Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, if there's some kind of supernatural event and experience that happens, then they will repent. And Father Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Spiritual experience. And the proof of that happened at the resurrection. People saw Jesus. People saw saints walking around Jerusalem that had been raised from the dead on the day of the resurrection or the day of the crucifixion, and they didn't believe. So is it experience or is it Scripture? And I would just want to say to us today, it's the Scripture, it's the Scripture, it's the Scripture, it's the Scripture, it's the Scripture over spiritual experience. Spiritual experiences are great. They don't confirm the Scripture. The Scripture stands alone by itself. It doesn't need us propping it up. It stands alone. All right. Peter's pretty clear, right? He's pretty clear. It's why we can trust God's Word. We can trust it. We can bank on it. We can stand on it. It's sure and certain. Let's pray.